If you would, open up your Bibles to Psalm chapter 11. Before we read that, give a bit of an introduction and get us moving in the right direction mentally before we read the psalm. So imagine this situation. A war seems imminent between you and a neighboring country. The memory of a recent war has left its scars on your nation and the nations around you. And the thought of another one is, to put it quite frankly, horrifying. It's a terrifying prospect. But thankfully, your country has been very proactive since the last war. It's been shoring up defenses, building barricades, making sure everything is secure. Everything is safe. Well, the possibility of the enemy being able to push through these defenses and these barricades, it seems impossible. Additionally, even if they do, you have a rather impressive army yourself. So even if they push through, the army should have the upper hand. You are proud Frenchmen, and the Germans cannot break through the mighty Maginot line. It is an engineering and strategic masterpiece. Fast forward, enter the year 1939. France and Great Britain declare war on Germany for invading Poland. They send an army through the lowland countries to teach those lousy Germans a lesson to teach them not to bully other nations. But that offensive didn't quite go to plan. The French ended up being routed and pushed back all the way into their own nation. It was a bit of a disaster. But they had the Maginot Line, so surely that would protect them from the Germans invading. Well, the fortress may have been extremely formidable, but a fortress is worthless if an enemy can just walk around it. And that's exactly what the German army did. France was so confident in this fortification system that they had built this Maginot line, they based almost everything on this one strategy. This will keep us safe. We don't need anything else. And yet by the spring of 1940, Paris had been occupied by the Germans and France was defeated. The French put their hope, they put their trust in this system of barricades. And in the end, they failed them. It was a formidable system. But at the end of the day, it was just a bunch of concrete and rock and metal. You see, mankind will always find something to trust in, something to protect them and give them what they need. But in the end, those things tend to collapse around them. Or in the case of France, the thing that you trusted in is just circumvented. So what do you do when you're in that situation? What do you do when the foundation of your hope crumbles? Well, despair and defeat are really the only options many times. There's only one thing in this life that can truly provide the solid foundation to trust in. God is always reliable and he is never uncertain. He cannot collapse, he cannot fail, and he cannot be circumvented. So this is the thesis for this sermon. Because the Lord reigns, we must trust him. At the face, it's pretty simple. We must trust him. All right, with that introduction, let's read from Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, flee like a bird to your mountain? For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see. His eyelids test the children of man. 
The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your wisdom and your guidance as we walk through this psalm. We pray that you would see more, we would see more clearly who you are, that we would rely on you more confidently because of it, that we would truly see you as our foundation, as our cornerstone, as our solid ground and safety. Lord, help us as we continue. We pray all this in Christ's name. Amen. So we're going to walk through two points to look at this psalm this morning. And the first is that we must trust him because he is the only foundation. So that's the first point. Let me begin that point by asking you a question. Do you profess that Yahweh, or the Lord, is your God? David opens this psalm with this statement of confidence. In Yahweh, I take refuge. So while a very simple statement, there are several things we can take away from this one sentence. First, David uses the covenant name for God. In your Bibles, it's Lord, all caps, but in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh. So by using the special name of God, David has called upon the faithfulness of the covenant God for his covenant people. Most people know the term has said, which is the Hebrew word we often translate as steadfast love. But what many don't realize is that God only has has said for his covenant people. Pagans, unbelievers, they can't call on God's special name and expect good things to happen. But David is able to call upon his God, his covenant Lord, and expect good things to happen. He can call on the holy creator of the universe as his safe shelter. So David professes to believe in Yahweh and his protection. And this is similar to David's statement in Psalm 23. The Lord is David's shepherd. David knew who offered protection and safety and guidance in life. So do you proclaim that God is your refuge, as David did? Well, if you're a believer, then you have every right to call upon the Lord as your refuge, just as David did. God's love for you in Christ is the prime motivation to trust that he is your refuge in times of trouble. So how many of you here this morning are willing to declare that Yahweh is your refuge? We may only call on him as our refuge if we are in Christ. Because otherwise, we may only go to him as condemned. But through faith in Christ, we can go to God at all times for help and for safety. But here's the real question. Do you profess that the Lord is your refuge at all times or only when things are going well? What happens when everything around you seems to crumble and it goes wrong? And at best, God's attitude towards you seems indifferent. If everything goes badly in this life, will the Lord still be your refuge? There are times in this life where it seems like the only logical thing that we can do is give up or run. And David was facing one of those situations in this psalm. There was a real threat to him. The psalm was probably written while he was running from the king Saul. There was a powerful enemy who wanted to see David dead. And in the face of that danger, it seems that someone was advising David to flee, run, save yourself. 
So either David's friends are encouraging him to do this, or perhaps David's own mind, his own fears, his own heart is telling him to turn and run. Maybe I can just fight later if I just run away now. There's nothing logical or honorable about standing and losing. Or what if I just sit here and wait to be destroyed by a mightier foe? There's nothing to that. This is the problem of the psalm which has to be resolved, that has to be answered and worked out. And so David begins to work that out. He, he gives an answer to either his own doubts or his friends, and he says, how can you say to my soul? Well, as we look at the reasons given for David to run, notice the position of hope from which he begins this psalm. There is doubt, there is fear, there is the desire to turn and run, but David preaches to himself, how dare you heart? How can these threats, how can you suggest even that they have real power or authority over me? Now, did David begin this exercise in hope because the threat wasn't that big a deal? Because the threat wasn't real? No. He faced real threats to his body and his soul. He was being chased down and hunted like a dog by King Saul. And if you were faced with that danger, then perhaps this advice to flee, save yourself, might not sound too bad. Just flee like a bird to the mountains. If a bird is chased by a predator, it doesn't sit and fight and wait around. It flies away. It goes to some high place to safety, to shelter. Well, David could have just fled to the mountains and hid. If he had men with him at this point, then he could have found a nice place to defend, a nice place to hide out. Why stay in the open? But even fleeing to David doesn't look that safe. While David is described as a bird fleeing from predators, his enemy is a hunter drawing a bow. The wicked were armed and ready to shoot the bird out of the sky as it fled. And worse still, the hunter is described as using darkness to sneak around. This enemy doesn't play fair and stay in the daylight. They're sneaky, concealing their movements and plans. The hunter is trying to sneak up on David so that they can end his life. But it was not just David's enemies that were out for blood. The wicked always, in every age and at every time, want to kill the righteous. They may not use bows and arrows to shoot at us, but they do ridicule, discredit, malign, or ostracize anybody who calls upon God and walks faithfully. The upright in heart are all those who love the Lord and seek to do His will. And they aren't upright because they are such great people on their own. They're upright because God has worked in their lives and made them His. And as such, they are upright and they are holy, and the wicked hate them for that. The wicked hunters don't just want to kill the righteous. They want to destroy justice, order, and morality. They want to tear down the very foundations of civil society. Their target is to tear it all down and to replace it with themselves and whatever they want. Well, David looked around and saw that the wicked had perverted justice, gained power, and that they were destroying Israel. Even as he was on the run, Israel was in trouble. The godly society that Israel should have been was in shambles. Now, much of the problem may have been Saul's mismanagement, but regardless, the point remains. Israel was rebelling against God, and they were suffering and paying the price for that sin. And so the doubt and the fear urging David to flee asked the hopeless question. If these foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? 
What could David do against such reckless evil? Surely one man couldn't change the entire culture. It's pointless to even try. Do you see any similarities to the current cultural moments in America and in the church? Is justice carried out in our country? People commit murder and only end up in prison for 10 years. They commit multiple murders and they get out in 40 with good behavior or at worst they sit in prison for life. Our entire justice system is based on an inherently unbiblical philosophy. Instead of punishing evil, our system focuses on rehabilitation and reentry, which contradicts the very definition of justice. What about morality? Is morality in a better place in our country? We hear preachers preaching tolerance, niceness, inclusivity as gospel while rejecting anyone who doesn't fall in line with exactly what they teach. Does that sound like a culture to you that's truly concerned with right and wrong, with morality? You can't even turn on the TV with your child in the room without having to continually tell them to cover their eyes while you scramble for the remote to hit the mute button. Because without fail, you will see gay and lesbian couples, drag queens, trans men and women in commercials. You can't avoid it. It's everywhere. And on top of all that, the most popular streaming services are obsessed with gory and dark content. Some of the most popular shows are dystopian thrillers or documentaries on serial killers. This culture celebrates anything and everything, desensitizing our children to even gender dysphoria. And in some places, they're even passing laws so that kids are enabled to get gender transition treatment and even surgeries. And there are other places where if you then try to stop your child, guess what? The state can remove them from you and push the child through the program anyway. So when you consider all that, it seems that at every turn, the foundational anchors of our society are being cast down and at an alarming rate. Marriages are falling apart, and the very definition has been expanded to include almost anything and anyone. There seems to be no end in sight. Our government leaders are more concerned with money and power than doing anything to help steer this country. And some of them are more wicked than the people that they are ruling over. So when we consider all this evil in our society, is it any wonder that poor mental health, mass shootings, and suicide are on the rise seemingly exponentially? When the Russian president comes out and accuses Western society of all kinds of horrible evils, and he is correct in every accusation, what are we to think about that? Well, Bible-believing Christians are becoming more and more outsiders in this social hierarchy. And while we still have the freedom to gather and worship and to speak freely, what if those blessings begin to disappear in the coming decades? What if more and more we go from culturally persecuted to physically persecuted, to being forced underground? What if things escalate to the point that you, your families, and your church are in threat all the time, that you are in constant danger for what you believe? What if we start getting locked up for our faith? What if the wiles and schemes of the devil succeed in bringing the church low? So the doubt from David's psalm, comes back around, or from his friends, excuse me. So as you think about the reality of where the culture in this nation is, I'll pose to you the same question. If these foundations are destroyed, 
What can the righteous do? What if that wicked man's arrow strikes home and everything comes crashing down around us? What then? Do we lament our situation and repeat the words of Psalm 44? For your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Is that it and there's no hope for us at that point? Maybe we should throw in the towel now before things get any worse. Maybe we can flee to the mountains. Well, we're in the mountains, so what next? Are we without hope? If our security as believers is tied only to the culture in which we live, then we might as well give up now. But thanks be to God that our foundation is not in this world or this culture or this time. As Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 19, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be pitied most. And the idea there is the same sentiment as Psalm in, in Psalm 11. The danger is real. Persecution and death are not off the table. But to look at those threats and to assume that running is the only option or giving up, that is out of the question. David's response to such faithlessness must be our response as well. How can you say this to my soul? If you are trusting in Christ and profess faith in him, then he is your foundation. And if the Lord God Almighty is your cornerstone, then you have every reason to be full of hope. So the type of confidence which we need is that when these doubts or feelings of hopelessness arise, we look them square in the face and we say, how dare you? Verse 4 gives us the hope we need and calls us back to the faithfulness of David's profession at the start of verse 1. For a second time, David uses the name Yahweh, reminding us again that God is faithful to his covenant people. And unlike our leaders who are ultimately powerless and yet want to be gods and kings, the Lord sits on the throne eternally as the all-powerful creator of the universe. Now David uses the name Yahweh a third time in verse 4 and tells us that God's throne is in heaven. Regardless of what that earthly landscape may look like around us, the Lord is always sitting on the true throne in heaven, ruling. The Lord is seated in his holy temple, ruling. So when it seems like everything is lost around us, we have to look to the heavens, to the one who truly reigns over all things. This is what happened in the book of Isaiah. When King Hezekiah died, and it seemed like everything in Israel was in total chaos, the prophet Isaiah looked up and he saw the Lord sitting in his holy temple on his throne, ruling at that moment. The situation on earth never changes the fact that God is always ruling from heaven. He sits enthroned on high where nothing can ever challenge his rule. King Jesus rules. So what we see around us is the same kind of thing that David dealt with in his day. Cultures, they rise and fall. They're sometimes more evil. They're sometimes less evil. Nations are ever-shifting sands that always collapse in the end under their own corruption. But not so with God. He rules forever as a solid rock. Christ is the cornerstone that cannot be moved and the one to whom every one of us has been connected and united in faith. He is the vine from which us, the branches, grow and flourish and produce fruit. The Lord is growing his church in every situation and at all times throughout history. He's able to use even the most wicked schemes and men to further his plans for good and glory. 
They work fruitlessly for themselves, but God is tilling his garden forever. Now, that may mean suffering and persecution for us at times. But he's able to use even those things for his glory and to grow his church. Consider the words of Richard Sibbs from the Bruised Reed. God sees fit that we should taste of that cup of which his son drank so deep. That we might feel a little what sin is and what his son's love was. But our comfort is that Christ drank the dregs of the cup for us. And will support us so that our spirits may not utterly fail under that little taste of his displeasure which we may feel. He became not only a man but a curse, a man of sorrows for us. He was broken that we should not be broken. He was troubled that we should not be desperately troubled. He became a curse that we should not be accursed. So whatever may be wished for in an all-sufficient comforter is all to be found in Christ. And so even as we deal with the threat of danger and the worries of a culture that is spiraling into hard sin, God is ruling on his throne. And we are called to hold fast to that profession. And if we claim Christ as our Lord and refuge, then we must put to flight these doubts of every kind by preaching the scripture and the gospel to ourselves again and again and again. Because God reigns, so be at peace. What have we to despair over with him on the throne? And even if we are oppressed by the wicked, God keeps score. And he will repay because vengeance belongs to the Lord. All right, the second point. We must trust him because he is the only righteous judge. So another implication of God sitting on his throne ruling is that he is the perfect judge who sees everything. David tells us that the eyes of Yahweh see. But he also writes that God's eyelids test. Now, eyes and eyelids are probably synonymous here. But the repetition of the sight which God has reminds us that nothing is hidden from his sight. If you and I look at someone, we can tell some things about that person externally or even through their behavior. But our observations, again, are only external things. Observing someone can only get you so far, but not so for the Lord. He sees the heart and he weighs the spirit because nothing remains hidden from his sight. The Lord does not sleep, nor does he get distracted. He sees and he knows all. So when you connect his omniscience to his holiness, then he becomes the perfect and the only possible judge of mankind. Therefore, this judge has eyes that test the children of man. Now, the word for test here is the same Hebrew word used to describe what a metalsmith does to refine gold and silver. And for those of you who aren't up on your reading in metallurgy, gold and silver are normally refined through fire. So as the gold and the silver are melted down, the impurities either burn off or float to the top where they can be removed. Anything that is not gold or silver needs to be eliminated because it's undesirable. It's an impurity. But what we see is that this is a picture of how the Lord tests us. God is a consuming fire that destroys anything that is impure or evil. And the actions of man or a metal alloy placed in the crucible awaiting the refining process. So the question is, who can undergo the judgment of the Lord? 
David uses the name Yahweh for a fourth time in verse 5 to tell us that the Lord tests the righteous. So if you thought that being a Christian meant that there is no testing, well, think again. We are the first to be mentioned in this text. Our lives are placed into the crucible of God's judgment. And so the question is this, will we be purified or will we be consumed? Well, right away, David gives us hope through a contrast. God will test or refine the righteous, but he hates the wicked. God is holy and pure, and anything that is sinful is an offense to his holiness. Evil remains forever separate from God as oil and water. And notice the wording David uses. So often we like to use phrases like hate the sin, not the sinner. But God hates the wicked, not just their wickedness. And if that's not enough for us to understand the hatred that the Lord has for evil, then verse 6 adds another curse on wickedness. David calls on God to rain burning coals on the head of the wicked. Now notice how the same fire that purifies the saints will now consume the wicked. The righteous receive a holy inheritance in Christ, but the wicked man's inheritance is very different. We gain glory and joy forever in Christ, but evil men receive fire, sulfur, and scorching wind. Now, the fire and the sulfur, it adds to this idea of God punishing evil as a consuming fire. And the scorching wind also adds to that idea. In the land of Israel, at the end of the spring growing season, the winds shift and they begin coming out of the east. And when the wind comes out of the east in Israel, it brings hot, dry, desert air. And literally overnight, you can have a nice green plant that when that wind shifts and comes in, it is brown within 24 hours. It is dead. It is killed. The hope of the wicked perishes like that once green plant. It is dried up. That is their portion and their cup. They are given the cup of wrath to drink, as Psalm 75 tells us. They have to drink it down to the bottom, to the very dregs, because it is the cup that they deserve. They have earned it, and so the just judge will hand them their cup. And if not for the blood of Christ, it would be your cup to drink as well. He drank that cup that you deserved. Jesus prayed in the garden just before his arrest that the cup would pass from him, if possible. He knew the punishment and the displeasure that he was going to receive from his father for sin. That cup was full of the wrath of God on sinners deserving of death and hell, whom he called to be saints. And yet, knowing the weight and the crushing burden of this punishment, Jesus said what? Not my will, but yours be done. And he endured the cross so that you could be called a child of God. As Hebrews 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross scorning at shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. So despite the horror of the cross and the displeasure of the Father, Christ underwent the cross for the joy of redeeming a people for himself. Christ endured hell for the joy of calling you, his people, his own. Well, now David calls on Yahweh for the fifth And final time in this psalm to tell us that he is righteous. 
And because he is righteous, he loves righteous deeds. Now, righteous deeds could also be translated as justice. Does that give you hope as a believer? It should, but not because you have earned a righteous standing through your righteous deeds. Christ lived that holy life that you could not so that you might receive the righteous standing you did not earn. Jesus also died the death he did not deserve so that you might not die the death that you do deserve. And so the justice of God is upheld and he can see you, his child, as righteous. The righteous are not consumed by the flame of God's holiness. Quite the opposite. They are purified and made glorious. We are purified and made complete because of Christ, by the power of his Holy Spirit. Because of the redemptive work of Christ, we will behold the face of God. Now, if a wicked man sees the face of God, he will die. But we can see the face of God as children see their father. We will see his face not in judgment or in wrath, but in love. And in that moment, we will be transformed to be like Jesus, the one who earned our spot and paid the penalty we could not. We have the full blessing of God through Jesus Christ. The one who sits on the throne and judges has also ensured our standing as children of God. And that is a reason to trust in the God in whom we take refuge. Let's conclude. We began with a proposition. Because the Lord reigns, we must trust him. We then talked about two reasons that David gives us in this psalm to trust in the Lord. First, we must trust him because he is the only foundation. God sits on his throne ruling over all the earth. Now, it may seem at times like the wicked have the upper hand or that it is one out, but God is in control. God reigns so we may be at peace. Second, we must trust in him because he is the only righteous judge. The Lord is a consuming fire of holiness that sees all. Nothing escapes his sight, and so all men will have to answer for everything they have ever done. He is that refining fire that will burn off all the dross on the day of judgment. And the wicked will not survive that, but those who are in Christ will be, made pure, will be purified and made perfectly complete and holy. Christ is the cornerstone. And for the righteous, he is the rock on whom we are being built up as living stones in a living temple. But for the wicked, he is the rock on which the wicked are crushed. He is judge. So allow me to give some final exhortations this morning. In the face of the sheer evil and chaos we see around us in our society, I don't know about you, but it's very easy for me to be despairing. To think, oh, there's no hope for any of this. But in this passage, I think there are quite a few lessons for us, for the faithful. First, we are called to rebuke doubt and anxiety over the state of our culture. We are called to preach God's truth and his word to ourselves and to one another continually. God is ruling and he is reigning and we therefore have no right to despair over the state of the world. This is something that we have to tackle together as the church and not just individually. So may the response, how can you say this to my soul, be ever on our lips and in our hearts. Second, we must proclaim the truth boldly to the culture around us. 
you must proclaim and declare the truths of the gospel in Christ to the world at all times. As Paul commands us in Romans 12, take every thought captive to Christ. The immorality of the world around us is contrary to the word of God. And that means that we must also preach the truth boldly to one another as the world inevitably slips into our thinking and behavior. We were called to something far greater than the filth that the devil sells us. Resist it with the truth. And third, we may, we may not compromise on that truth ever. So regardless of the threat that we may face, no matter how dangerous it may seem, we have to hold fast to that truth. Regardless of peer pressure, professional consequences, or reputation, we may not budge on the gospel. And if we are naive enough in the first place to think that giving ground on even one minute point of the truth will ever gain us ground, then we are foolish beyond compare. But we would also be unloving to compromise on that truth. Because the people of this world are shackled and they are dead under the weight of their sin. They need the truth to be lovingly and gently and carefully, but also boldly proclaimed to them. Because nothing else can help them out of that bondage other than the truth. The right vote won't fix it. Having the right leaders in place won't fix it. The right government programs are not going to fix it. Even good philosophy and schools are not going to fix the problem. They need truth. They need Christ. So do not deprive your neighbor of what they need most. Fear, timidity, and shame, they can't stop us from doing what we have been called to do. So own the truth, own the gospel, and preach it constantly in word and in deed to everyone around you. Because the truth is what you need. The truth is what your brothers and sisters in Christ need. And the truth is what the unbelievers need. Finally, seek refuge in the Lord. He is our foundation. He is righteous. He loves the righteous. And thanks be to Christ, the righteous will behold the face of God. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you for the eternal truths of this psalm. That you are the one who sits reigning over all things. That you are the great judge who judges over the righteous and the evil. Lord, we thank you that you have called us to be your people. We thank you that you have given us the gospel in Christ, that we may trust in him by faith, that we may not only escape the wrath of the judgment, but that we may love and behold the face of God. Lord, help us to understand this truly and help us to realize the true dire need that every unbeliever is in. Lord, help us to be bold and steadfast in proclaiming your gospel because it is the only thing that can give life. Lord, we praise you this morning and we give you thanks. It's in Christ's name we ask. Amen.